I love that in our songs this morning, we're con- con- continuing that resurrection theme. It's like all the songs that don't make the cut for Easter, but still talk about the resurrection and how great it is. Uh, very appropriate. A history of the Christian church has, has had this thing called Eastertide, and that's sort of based on the belief that we shouldn't just celebrate Easter one Sunday, but it should carry on, and the celebration should carry on. So wonderfully appropriate and a great reminder of the, the heart of the gospel. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to turn to, to chap, John chapter 20. Uh, we are going to continue this look at the resurrected Jesus Christ this morning um, and finish off our Lenten series, which, is, which we've called The Unexpected Messiah. Uh, but really, it's a, a series that talks about how Jesus was the expected Messiah who came in the most unexpected of ways. Uh, We've seen that when everybody was grabbing for for greatness and power, uh, Jesus took the opportunity to be a servant, uh, lowering himself to even wash his disciples' feet, taking the place of the lowest of lows. We've seen that when everybody else was climbing for, for social status and climbing for social power, Jesus stepped in and gave equal treatment to people who were at the top of the social ladder as well as the bottom. We've seen that when the crowd was really concerned about their elite status, Jesus told parables that were controversial. And we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the ethnic enemy of the Jews becomes the hero of the story. We've seen that when everybody else was concerned about ease and comfort, Jesus commanded them to take up their cross and to follow him. When the crowd was full of self-righteous judgment, what did Jesus do? He welcomed sinners and embraced them in their flaws. And even last week, when we saw him resurrect from the dead, he didn't call a press conference. He didn't launch a social media campaign. Instead, he showed himself to three women whose testimony would have been regarded as idle and worthless talk by everyone else. And so he was indeed the expected Messiah who came in the most unexpected ways. He kept everybody on their toes. He was always full of surprises. And the truth is that he still is. He was resurrected from the dead. We don't worship a Savior who is dead, but instead one who's alive, one who still keeps us on our toes. So what I want to do this morning is continue that Easter excitement and finish with a look at Jesus's interaction with two individuals after he had resurrected from the dead. And his treatment of them is surprising. It's quite unexpected and very different probably than the way you and I would have reacted. And so the first individual we come to is an individual called Thomas. We know him historically as Doubting Thomas. And so uh, we turn first to John chapter 20, verses 19 to 29, so you can follow along in the screens or in your bulletin as well. Listen to God's Word. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. 
If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for its power and significance. Thank you for uh, the stories it contains about real people that struggle with things that, that we struggle with as well. And so we get to see you interact with these people, and it shows us the power of the gospel in their hearts and lives, and we can bring it forward to see how the power of the gospel shapes our hearts and our lives as well. So be with us now as we look at your word. Speak to our hearts, Lord, because we need to hear your voice. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So our passage opens with the disciples, and they are still cowering in the upper room, likely the the place where they had celebrated the Last Supper. They're cowering in the upper room, probably for fear that they were going to be next. Um, Were the Jews and the Romans going to conspire together to have them arrested and flogged and executed? Were they to follow the same fate as Jesus? And so They probably had to wonder, well, maybe if we lay low and we stay out of sight for a little while, all of this will blow over and we can just go back to our normal lives. Now, they'd also were wrestling with the fact that they'd heard rumors, rumors that the grave was empty, but of course, they just dismissed that as idle talk and didn't really give a whole lot of stock to it. And then suddenly, suddenly, Jesus is there standing in their midst. He shows them his hands. He shows them his side. Twice he says to them, peace be with you. Essentially saying, have peace in the midst of all your fears. Jesus is knowing what's going on in their hearts. Have peace in the midst of all your fears. Remember when I calmed those raging seas? Well, let me calm the raging seas of your heart by offering my peace. And then he breathes on them the power of the Holy Spirit. But John tells us there was one notable absence of this first visitation of Jesus Christ. He tells us that, that this uh, man Thomas, also known as the twin, wasn't there when Jesus uh, w- visited them. Maybe he was sent out for takeout or something along those lines. We don't know why he wasn't there, but he wasn't there. But we do know that when he returned, he'd heard the reports and he'd heard the stories from all the disciples. And yet, despite all of his disciple friends and all of their witnesses, he didn't believe. He didn't believe what they had to say. And it wasn't so much that his doubts were the problem. It actually, John tells us, it was really his belief. It was his unbelief. So probably a better title for him than Doubting Thomas would be 
unbelieving Thomas, because that really was the issue. But Thomas took a step further. He, he wasn't content with just his disbelief, but he makes a grand pronouncement within his disbelief. And we sort of roll our eyes as the, as the readers thousands of years removed. But he makes this grand pronouncement. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand in his side, he says what? I will never, I will never believe. So for Thomas, it wasn't enough to just hear about the witnesses. He needed to see it. He needed to touch it. Of course, John tells us eight days later what happens. Jesus appears again, and this time Thomas is there. I can imagine Thomas is sort of cowering in the corner, wanting to stay out of the sight of Jesus because of his grand pronouncement. But Jesus calls him forward, and this is when really the unexpected happens. Don't you expect Jesus to sort of say to Thomas, come on, Thomas, come on, man, we, we talked about this. You couldn't believe all these witnesses that your friends had here. You couldn't believe what they had to say. You can remember that I said all this was going to happen for several years. You couldn't just have an ounce of faith in me like your friends do here. Or even this, you couldn't have just kept your unbelief to yourself. You had to to make this grand pronouncement as well. And so we would expect Jesus to say to Thomas, hey, you you, you lost it here. Please leave or uh, you forfeited your role as an apostle. There's no place for you in my kingdom if you can't have faith in the midst of all this. That's what we expect Jesus to say because that's probably what we would say in this situation. But Jesus doesn't say any of that at all. We expect correction. We expect a little bit of guilt, a little bit of shaming for Thomas because of this. But Jesus does none of that. Instead, he says, peace be with you. And he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. See, what does Jesus do? He speaks peace into Thomas's unbelief, and he speaks it with all kinds of grace and kindness, even in the midst of Thomas's flaws. I think this is significant and important for us to remember, because if you remember back to Easter, we talked about what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. We talked about how it involves our mind, our our emotions, our affections, our action, our behavior. Believing in Jesus uh, is intended to capture everything about us. And so the temptation is to think that we need to have all those things perfect before God, and then we will be saved. Then we will be forgiven. But what the truth is, is that Jesus, and that's what this story reminds us, is that Jesus meets us in the midst of our imperfect and messy faith. He pursues after us even when we are tossed about and plagued by all sorts of doubts and all sorts of unbelief. Remember back to the story of the man who came to Jesus and uh, his, his child was sick and he wanted Jesus to heal his child And uh, Jesus says to him, your your child will be healed. All you need to do is believe. 
And the man, God bless him, looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. So he acknowledged to Jesus his own weak faith. Now, Jesus didn't say to him, all right, you've got weak faith. That's a good start. Go back and, and come back to me when your faith is stronger, and then maybe we can do something here. Come back when you've dispelled all your doubts and when your faith is rock solid. Jesus doesn't say any of that to him. Instead, he simply healed the man's child, even in the midst of an admission of a really messy faith. Friends, I think this is good news. I know it's at least good news for me, and here's why. Do you ever wrestle with doubts and unbelief? Do you ever in those quiet moments get plagued by certain questions, or maybe you find it hard to believe in what the Bible teaches, or, or maybe you even struggle with certain persistent questions and and doubts and struggles when it comes to the faith. If that's you, then you're like me. I think you're in good company with all of us because we all struggle with these things. In fact, I think by, by nature, faith is a wrestling. It's a wrestling. But also know that God welcomes those people who do struggle with faith and unbelief. The gospel tells us that perfection actually is not at all required. All we simply need to do is to know where to go with our imperfection because Jesus welcomes us into his arms. No matter how messy or imperfect, no matter how many doubts or struggles plague us day in and day out, Thomas's story reminds us of that very thing. But as I mentioned, there's a second individual we want to look at this morning. We're not going to read the story, but the second individual is our beloved Peter, our beloved Peter. If you know anything about the story at the end, at the very end of Jesus's life, Peter had dug himself into quite a hole. Remember at that last meal together, uh, Jesus says that Someone at this table is going to betray me. And everybody looks at each other and they, they wonder, who's it going to be that, that's going to betray uh, Jesus? And Peter has his own grand announcement in that moment where he declares for all to hear that he would never, ever, ever betray Jesus. He promises Jesus, Jesus, I'm going to go with you to the very end. I'm going to walk by your side to the very end. But just hours later, Jesus is arrested in the garden and his disciples, they scatter. They run in every direction. And what we know is that Peter is one of those disciples who scatter, but he he keeps Jesus at a safe distance for the next couple of hours because he he wants to see what's going to happen. And so Jesus is taken into the high priest. He's interrogated in this high stakes courtroom drama and Jesus in his resolve, uh, stands firm, stands under the pressure. He even signs his own death sentence by doing so. But meanwhile, the gospel writers tell us that Peter, at a safe distance, is outside warming himself by a fire. He's also questioned in that moment, but it's a lot less pressure than what Jesus was facing uh, before the high priest We learn that there are two servant girls and a bystander who all question Peter's relationship with Jesus, and three times Peter denies Jesus, even knowing him. The rooster crows, Peter realizes what has happened, and he breaks down weeping because he has betrayed Jesus. 
After that, Peter disappears. When Jesus is being mocked and beaten and spit upon, nowhere to be found. When Jesus is being crucified, when he takes his final breath, when he's taken down from the cross, placed in a tomb, Peter is not around. I can only imagine that he was somewhere quiet, wrestling with his own doubts, wrestling with what had just happened and what he had done. Really, we don't see Peter again until Sunday morning uh, when he learns about the empty grave. Um, He doesn't really show up until then when he visits the empty tomb. But then miraculously, the resurrection, Jesus is there. He's with them. He's alive. He's been resurrected from the dead. He's beaten death and the grave. And so you have to imagine that no matter how happy Peter is to see Jesus, he had to know that there was still a conversation that needed to happen. And he didn't know when that conversation was going to come, but he knew the conversation had to happen. And John tells us about that conversation right after this Thomas story. The scene of the uh, the conversation happens uh, after the disciples have been fishing on the Sea of Tiberias. And they'd been fishing all night. They'd they'd caught nothing. The sun was rising. They had no fish uh, to show for it. And what we learn is there was a man standing at the shore, and that man tells them to cast their nets out. And so they cast their nets out. They bring this huge haul of fish once again. And Peter, at that moment, realizes that it's Jesus who is standing on the shore. So what does Peter do? Love this part. Immediate Peter realizes it's Jesus standing on the shore, so he jumps out of the water. Or he jumps into the water and and swims to the shore. He wasn't content with waiting for the boats to arrive. He had to be near Jesus. He had to be by his side. So the story goes that Jesus shares a nice little breakfast with one another on the shore of the sea. And as the fire was dying down and everybody's stomach was full, Jesus and Peter finally needed to have the conversation that they both knew was coming. And so in that conversation, three times, Peter is given the opportunity to affirm his love for Jesus, and Peter gets an affirmation for each one of his previous denials. And in this little quiet conversation, Peter is finally restored. And I love how the gospel writers so artfully present it. Peter's greatest mistake happened by a small charcoal fire in the middle of the night, And his restoration happened by another small fire at the break of dawn. Just a beautiful picture of his both uh, denial and his resurrection. Now, why is all this surprising? Well, it's unexpected because you and I probably, again, we would chide Peter. We might sort of make him feel a little bit guilty, make him suffer a little bit, or feel shameful for what he had done. But that is not at all what Jesus does. He shows Peter that even his greatest mistake, denying Jesus, even his greatest mistake would no longer need to define his life or his identity. Peter wouldn't have to live with the regret that came from these denials, wishing he could somehow change it all in his past. Peter wouldn't even have to work any sort of penance or somehow earn his way into Jesus' favor once again. Instead, Jesus simply speaks love into Peter's great regret. 
what good news is for you and I as well. Because friends, we all live with past failures. We all live with past sins, things we'd love to go back and change if we could. Things we wish we could go back into a younger version of ourselves and say, don't do that thing. Don't step on that road or whatever it might be. We all live with these failures and regrets. They feel like a stain sometimes that is on our lives that we cannot clean. And no matter how much we work them off, we can't. No matter how much we try to earn our way back to God, we can't. But the good news is is that Jesus isn't really interested in all that. He isn't interested in our penance. He's only interested in our restoration. So the gospel tells us that only through faith in him and his work of salvation on our behalf can we be restored because of his life and his death and his resurrection. You and I, just like Thomas, just like Peter, we can experience grace in the midst of our greatest failures. It's not about penance because no amount of penance can do the trick. Instead, we simply need Jesus to speak into our lives and restore us. So I think John wants us to do what Peter does. He wants us to step out, jump out of whatever boat that we're living in at this moment to run to Jesus, to to give up the futility of trying to earn our way back to him and instead rest in Jesus's restoration. Great quote I heard years ago said this, God finds us in the holes we dig for ourselves, where we see our failures, God sees the foundations, the foundations of his grace and work in our lives. So here's two case stories that remind us that Jesus is the expected Messiah who came in the most unexpected of ways. In the face of unbelief and betrayal, you and I, we expect judgment, we expect shame, we expect guilt. And instead of it, we see the peace and love of a Savior. Each of these men were wonderfully flawed, and each of them were restored by Jesus. But they weren't just restored, they were even empowered. God's work became the foundation to empower them to advance his kingdom. What we know about Thomas is he was the guy that took the gospel for the first time into Persia and into India. This incredibly flawed man that we know is doubting Thomas or unbelieving Thomas, he becomes the one that takes the gospel to the east that no one else had taken the gospel to before. And then there's Peter, who becomes the principal leader in the church of Jerusalem, leading the advancement of God's kingdom to the Jewish people, standing in front of everyone on Pentecost, preaching the gospel, seeing 3,000 souls This denier of Jesus Christ preaches a gospel and 3,000 souls are converted to Jesus Christ in that moment. See, Jesus didn't restore them, but he empowered them to advance the kingdom of God in incredible ways. And he does that for you and I as well. Friends, we are just as flawed. And yet you and I, we can be restored and not just restored, but empowered to be an instrument of God's kingdom in our world. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing? There's a great old episode, and I'll finish with this, a great old episode of Everybody Loves Raymond. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. Uh, it was on, the, on television years ago, and you know it's an old show because reruns are on TV land now. That's when a show gets old status, I suppose. But there's this great flashback episode when, when Ray and Deborah, the main married couple of the show, uh, they do a flashback to the time 
where they got engaged. And Ray has this elaborate engagement process, and of course it gets interrupted by his family, and so he, he has to propose to Deborah when there's a whole crowd of people around. And it's this nice little moment. Uh, but the next morning he starts thinking about it, and he realizes uh, that uh, he never really heard Deborah say yes, right? The, the crowd was all around, and he starts thinking to himself, well, maybe she just took the ring because she didn't want to embarrass me in front of the crowd. Um, and then his, his doubts and his insecurities start to snowball, and he thinks, well, maybe she wanted to say no, but she couldn't because of the crowd that was there. Uh, and then he starts, how could, when I think about it, how could she really love someone like me? And I think he makes a wisecrack about his nose and all that sort of stuff. And, and he thinks, how could someone like that want to be married to someone like me? And his heart becomes all unsettled. He's full of all sorts of doubts, and he's full of all sorts of, of unbelief about this whole thing. And so later in the day, he gets a quiet moment to really propose to Deborah when no one is around. And she, in that moment, affirms her love and her commitment to him. And all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, his heart is finally at peace. All the doubts, all the uncertainties are chased away. His heart is at peace, and he's filled with great joy. Friends, we're really no different when it comes to God. We're full of doubts. We're full of unbeliefs. We're full of regrets. We wonder, is it possible that God could really love someone like me? We get those questions, millions of other doubts, millions of other questions. Really, the ultimate question we need to think about is if we all have those things, then what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about these doubts and regrets? Well, I think both of our friends in this story tell us, take them to Jesus. Take those doubts and regrets to, Jake, to, to Jesus. You won't be met with guilt. You won't be met with shame. You won't be met with a shaking finger or uh, a head that's sort of shaking and impatient with you. You'll be met with one who loves you, even in the midst of your imperfections. Let's pray.